Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor at Genesis, and we love having you with us today. And I want to point out one last time, uh, we are offering a seminar this Friday night called The Restoration of All Things with my Israel guide and teacher, Brad Gray. Uh, there's no cost for this, but there is no child care, all right? And uh, it's a six to nine event, and you need to sign up today, all right? We're going to close off registrations tomorrow. We have 120-some people that have signed up. We'll take as many as can come, but uh, we need to know if you're going to be there because we are planning food for this event. You can sign up through the web or uh, through the app. Again, it's going to be a really good time. You've heard me talk a lot about Israel, and I'm going to keep talking about it for the years to come. But, uh, you know, on my sabbatical this summer, not only did I get that great opportunity, but also the opportunity uh, I've made some great memories with, uh, with my family, and as most of you know, we as a family were able to travel to Alaska together for 10 days, where we spent a few days uh, on land, and then uh, got on a cruise ship for seven days, and I don't know about all of you, we're not big cruisers, uh, Jenny and I, I mean, we've done it a couple of times, but uh, it's really the best way uh, to see the Alaskan coast, and uh, if you've gone on a cruise before, uh, you know there are all sorts of little unique experiences about it, one of those being the insane amount of food uh, that they serve on the boat, you know, through the buffets and through the restaurants and all. But uh, this is just so funny. One brilliant idea that my wife came up with for our kids was she told them at the very first meal, hey, listen, I'm not going to tell you what you can and can't eat this week, all right? We're all on vacation, so it's all on you. Make good choices, all right? And you can eat whatever you want all week long. Well, I wish you could have seen the plate that my 11-year-old son walked back with uh, from the buffet piled with meat, all right? Like as high, I mean, from steak to pork to bacon to hamburgers. I mean, he experienced meat sweats, you know? You know, you know what those are, some of you guys especially, uh, for himself. It, it was so much fun. Again, just a great memory uh, Fun to experience this with your kids. You, you've had opportunities like that, you know, with people that you love, maybe children, maybe your family, whether it was a really great day or a really uh, great trip. I mean, we all know, I think we, well, hopefully we know the, the value of experiences uh, with people that you love and the memories that come uh, with them. Well, if you read through the first four books of the New Testament, we often call them the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus took his disciples on a number of trips. Uh, he's going to give them a number of experiences over a three-and-a-half to four-year period, and he's going to use these experiences to train them to become disciple-makers. And so that just meant for him that every moment, uh, every interaction, every encounter that he enjoyed with them served as an opportunity to train them and to grow them in their faith, their faith in the Lord. And I just want you to know today that Jesus wants to do the very same thing in your life. Uh, he, he wants to use your life. He wants to use my life as well. He wants to, to make a disciple out of each of us, and life becomes a classroom for us. I mean, every day and every moment of life really becomes a classroom and an opportunity for the Lord to uh, increase our faith, to grow our faith, to stretch our faith, you know, especially as we find ourselves spending more and more time with Jesus, you know? As we study his life, as, as we get to know him, as we start to ask those questions about why he did the things that he did, and well... What's that look like for me on Monday? You know, what's that look like for me on a, on a Friday night 
to live as if Jesus were living through me. And so we want to make it our goal. I mean, that's really what we're after right now is we want to make it our goal uh, to live for him, to live through him uh, in everything that we do. And uh, if you are new with us today, we're in the second week of a series that we're calling In the Flesh. Uh, it really comes right out of the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 1, John the disciple writes these words of Jesus. He says, you know, in the beginning was the Word. And when he says the Word, he's talking about Jesus here. He says, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so for us at Genesis, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and, and that he was with God in the beginning and he's always been and he always will be. But we also hang on these words that you can find just a few verses later, uh, again by John. In John chapter 1, verse 14, when we read that that word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so we like to say that Jesus is fully God and that he became fully human when he came and when he entered into this earth as a baby. And here's what we, I think, so often do. We tend to focus, and I've been guilty on this, we tend to focus on the God part of Jesus, as important as that is, but we often miss what can be learned from his life as we study the fully man part of Jesus. And so in this series, that's what we're doing. In the flesh, we, we want to study the life of Jesus. And over the, the next few months, we just want to trace his steps here on the earth and ask questions like, who is he? Uh, what, what, what do we learn about him? What, what, why did he do the things that he did? What, what was his relationship with God the Father like? And how did he, how did he manage to live a sinless life here on the earth? And and what was he teaching his disciples along the way? Okay, let's not miss. Even as you're reading for yourself, always look for those moments when the disciples are standing there over Jesus' shoulder. What is he trying to teach and train them to do? But let's also just acknowledge, too, that this story of Jesus is like no other story in the world. And I don't know about you, but I'm banking my life on Jesus, all right? And that this is true, and, and so shouldn't we make every effort to know him and to study him and to know every single detail of his life. Uh, last week, if you missed it, we discovered how Jesus met his first disciples. Uh, they were following a guy by the name of John the Baptist. John was always talking about Jesus, preparing them for Jesus. And because he encouraged even his own disciples to follow Jesus, that's what they did. Two joined him first, if you remember, uh, from the story in John 1, Andrew, and many believe the disciple John, uh, but by the end of John chapter 1, that group grew to five or six men who started following Jesus. And so today, uh, we want to pick up the story in John chapter 2, if you'd like to follow along with us. Uh, John chapter 2, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. I didn't catch a page number this morning, uh, but we'll also have the verses here for you on the screen. Uh, John chapter 2, uh, you're going to see how Jesus is ready now to, to give these disciples an experience. All right, again, we want to we see this through their eyes as well. And we're not exactly sure by John 2 how long they had been together at this point. Maybe, probably only a matter of a few days. And so they're still getting to know Jesus, trying to understand him. But Jesus is ready to provide for them a life-changing experience that's going to serve as a foundation of faith for them for the rest of their lives. Let's pick it up in John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The disciple, the apostle John, records it like this. He says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. 
Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, we're not sure if this third day is the third day since they met Jesus, uh, if it's the third day of the week or the third day of the wedding celebration. Some suggest that John's use of the words third day here are meant to pique our curiosity, really, and to remind us of an even more important third day in Scripture that will take place in the years to come, and that is the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if that's the case, then John's words are really just more symbolic here, again, a way of, of piquing our interest. Uh, uh, we've got a map for you, and we've been talking a lot about maps. We want to do our best to try and understand some geography, and I think this will help as we continue along in the series. If you remember last week, uh, we found Jesus and his disciples. Disciples uh, down here in Bethany, where John the Baptist has been baptizing. Jesus was likely baptized here in this area, just north of the Dead Sea. But what we find in John chapter 2 is that Jesus and his disciples have made their way up the Jordan River Valley. They're going to cross the Jezreel Valley, maybe to Nazareth first. And Jesus grew up in Nazareth, so this was a home for him. But they're going to wind up in this place called Cana. We're not exactly sure where Cana is located. Many experts believe it's in the neighborhood of Nazareth, which is likely so in that weddings were community events. And so if the people of Nazareth were near this village of Cana, well, most likely there was family. And so in Jesus' case, maybe this is a family wedding. Maybe these are close friends from the family. Some even guess, is it possible that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was maybe from Cana? Regardless, all we know is that Jesus and his disciples have come to this wedding in Cana. Mary's there, likely other family too, all said it's significant. All right, this is a significant event, and it's significant for Jesus and his new ministry, but it's also significant for Jesus and his disciples, too, and here's why. Verse 3, it says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Okay, and so we see right away that there's a conflict. Uh, there's a problem at this wedding. There's no more wine, and it may not seem like a big deal to us. I'll tell you, I've been to some weddings before where running out of wine early would be a really good thing for, for everyone, uh, but uh, it may not seem like a big deal, but it is, and much like weddings today, this is a day when family wants everything to go right, but there's even more to that. I think it's helpful to know that weddings in the ancient world were a really big affair, all right? These were a big deal. They lasted anywhere from four to seven days, all right, wedding celebrations, four to seven days. And it was common for families to invite as many people as they knew, the whole town for sure. And so it was a big responsibility for the host. I mean, if you're hosting this wedding, you're expected to provide food for the guests and also an adequate amount of wine for up to the seven-day celebration. And so to run out of wine then was a major faux pas. And something like this would ruin a celebration. It could bring great shame to the family. There could even be a financial fine for such an offense. Crazy, I know. It's just the way that it was. So why did they run out? All right, why did they run out of wine? Too many guests, maybe? Uh, maybe some incorrect calculations? My money's on the groom, all right? Can you just hear the conversation at the wedding table? The bride turning to him and saying, I have done everything for this wedding. I gave you one job, the beverages, all right? That's all you were responsible for, and you messed this up. But uh, no, we don't know who's to blame here. All we know is that there's no more wine. The family begins to panic. There's a reputation on the line. And then enter Jesus. Here comes our Savior, and... Uh, 
I, I don't want to try and overcomplicate it. Let's just see it for what it is. Part of what I think we're to see here today is that Jesus cares about the really big things of life and he cares about the really small things of life too, the very details of life. And what a great reminder for us that there is nothing too small for our God. There's nothing too small for him. He's a, he's a God that cares about the details of, uh, of your life. He's a God that cares about our fears and our mistakes. He's a, a God that is more than capable of, of comforting us in our troubles. There's nothing that's too small for him. In fact, if it's a big deal to you, then it's a really big deal to our God. That's the kind of relationship that he, he wants to have with his children. And why does Mary come to Jesus? Well, because it's likely family, she's playing some role in the wedding celebration here. And she's, if you look at it, if you really study the passage, it's not as if she's asking Jesus for a miracle, but she seems to insinuate that she knows he could. And let's not forget that this is the mother of Jesus, all right? And so this is the same mother that received the angelic announcement and witnessed all of the events and has spent so many years with Jesus now. And so she knows he's special. She knows something of his potential. And so she sees a problem that needs solving, and she knows the person to find. And I just think that provides for us a great example of faith, all right? That Mary provides a great example of faith and even prayer here. Like, like she knew where to go. Like, I, I, she's got a problem. She witnesses this problem she knows where to turn she knows that it's okay to ask and let's be encouraged by that too all right just in our everyday living that it's always okay to ask it's always okay to turn to the Lord again there's nothing too great for him Uh, there is nothing too small for him right now an entire family is on the verge of shame what's the solution turn to Jesus let's turn to Jesus let's seek Jesus it's okay to ask Jesus and here's Jesus response verse 4 He responds, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, I wouldn't blame you if you were a little concerned at Jesus' response to his own mom here, all right? Like, I can't get away with talking to my mom like this, even at the age of 42, but uh, it sounds like Jesus is being rude here, but trust me, he's not. This is a formal way of addressing his mother. In fact, there's one more occasion in the scriptures where Jesus addressed his mother this way. And it's when Jesus is hanging on the cross and knowing that he's about to die, Jesus sees his mother Mary there suffering with the disciple John. And do you remember what Jesus says to her? His words to her were, woman, behold your son. And so even at a desperate, tender moment for them and in their relationship, Jesus addressed his mother with the very same formality. And so he asked, woman, why do you involve me? And then look at his next statement. He says, my hour has not yet come. This is John's way of reminding us that Jesus is living under the daily direction and guidance of his father. I mean, one thing is true is that Jesus wasn't going to do anything that his father had not directed him to do. And so he's living under that guidance. And, and he's going to demonstrate for us, not only today in this passage, but really all throughout this series, that he is going to live according to his father's will and his father's timing, but I got to ask, and maybe you're already asking this question too, what's wrong with one little miracle? All right, maybe Mary's thinking, what's wrong with one little miracle? And maybe Jesus' hesitation was a miracle like this, maybe it would cause such a spectacle that the public response, you know, might distract him, you know, for what he really wants to do, the work he came to do, And, and, and what do I mean by that? Well, Let's know this. Jesus came to die. There there is no doubt about this, that he came to give his life on the cross. But he also came to make disciples. And we can't forget that. 
Jesus came to make disciples. Jesus came to turn people back to God and then to teach them and train them and release them to go and do that very same for others. We call this disciple making. And because Jesus made disciples, we're still talking about him 2,000 years later, right? I mean, because Jesus fulfilled the mission that he came to accomplish, we're still talking about him today. The movement continues in us and through us because of the work of Christ. And so he needs the disciples to start a movement, which he means he needs time to be able to pour into and invest and train these men, which means the cross will come, but it can't come yet. It can't come too soon. There's work to do. And so maybe Jesus is a little concerned about drawing too much attention to himself too quickly but Mary's not putting all this together, and so she asks him for help. And Jesus isn't so sure, but let's, let's see something else about the faith in Mary. Look at verse 5. It says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so Mary respects Jesus enough to accept what he must do, all right, and what, 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 what is convicting him. But, but just again, look at her faith. She's bold enough to ask, but then chooses to trust. Maybe write that down in your notes today, even today. Bold enough to ask, but humble enough to trust. Bold enough to ask, faithful enough to trust. Man, what's that look like for you right now? Uh, For you in your life and in your prayers. I mean, what's that kind of faith look like tomorrow that you're bold enough? There's... you're, You're living out the faith that you own and possess, and so you're bold enough to ask and to trust, but then it's time to obey. And faith is trusting, faith is choosing to obey. But again, what about the disciples? What are they seeing? What are they witnessing? I mean, remember, they're, they're standing here, maybe looking over the shoulder of Jesus. They're seeing all of this. And was it awkward for them to get caught up in the middle of this conversation between Jesus and his own mom? Maybe, we don't know. But while he appears to hesitate at first, something happens. And Jesus is going to act. And we're not exactly sure why, but... Maybe somehow he sensed his, his father prompting him to act. Maybe it had a little bit to do with his mother's own faith and patience and humility in this moment. Maybe it was his compassion and his concern for the family uh, that's in panic right now. It could be a little of all of these, but do you know what else I think? I think Jesus realized this was an opportunity to jumpstart the faith of the disciples. And he certainly knew they were going to need a whole lot of faith in the days were ahead of them. And so look at what happens next. Verse 6. It says, Nearby stood six uh, stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Uh, now we got a picture here to show you of Uh, what these stone water jars may have looked like. And these are stone water jars from the first century A.D. uh, that are on display today at the Israel Museum uh, in Jerusalem. But here's what happened. Jesus gives these instructions, all right? And so think about what has to take place here. Six stone water jars, as John describes. How much weight is that? We don't know. Okay, I don't know for sure. Let's just think low, all right, And, and guess maybe 25 pounds per jar. And so someone has to pick up this stone jar and carry it from wherever the wedding is taking place, likely to a town spring or water source, fill it with 30 gallons of water, because notice the text says that they were filled to the brim. If you do the math, if you take eight pounds per gallon, we're talking about 240 pounds of water alone, add to that the 25 pounds per jar, 
265 pounds per stone jar, and someone is doing the manual work here and thinking to themselves, I better get a really good gift, you know, for serving in, in this wedding, carrying these stupid jars. But imagine if you're one of the servants, all right? Imagine if it's your task. I mean, what's going through your mind? I just want you to take note that someone's obeying here. There are people who are just simply listening. They're following instructions, maybe even when they don't make sense, and I certainly think that applies to life and faith and We've all experienced that in different ways, especially when, when, when life doesn't make sense. I mean, God's word, let's just be real. I mean, sometimes his instructions, maybe in your situation or in your particular moment, don't always make sense. But these men are doing as they're told. They're trusting. They're obeying until six stone jars were filled to the brim with 180 gallons total of water. Verse 8, it says, then Jesus told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And again, what if you're the servant, all right? And as you dip the pitcher into the water, you're thinking to yourself, still looks like water to me, all right? All right, and, and you've watched the people fill these jars with water, and now this former carpenter is telling you to take the liquid to the master of ceremonies. And who's that? Let's just, I think it's appropriate to call him DJ Mix It Up or DJ Mess It Up or something. This master of ceremonies, as DJ, his role was to officiate the wedding. All right, he's supposed to taste all the food and all the wine and make sure that it's all acceptable. He's also supposed to regulate the consumption of it to make sure that everyone is happy. And so his reputation is sort of on the line. Look at verse 9. It says, the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though. The servants had drawn the water new. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, man, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. And so again, DJ Mix It Up has no idea, all right, how all this went down. All he knows is that the better wine was saved for last he knew that you're supposed to serve the good stuff first, save the cheap stuff for later. And so what, what does Jesus accomplish here? Well, in case you didn't realize it, this is the first recorded miracle by Jesus in all of Scripture. And what did he do? He turned 180 gallons of water into 757 bottles of really good wine. And we're not talking about two-buck chuck stuff that you buy from Trader Joe's either. I mean, this is the good stuff. And, and, and here's something else about all of this, and I'll just add this. There is so much symbolism in this passage today to be referenced in Isaiah and the book of Revelation about the Messiah and the great wedding banquet when Jesus Christ returns once and for all. And that's a lot of important stuff that we just didn't have time for today. But part of what I think John wants you and me to see this morning is this, that this is so much more than a miracle of quantity. But John is also emphasizing how it was a miracle of quality too. And here's what I want to say about that. If you let it, even this story can strengthen and encourage your faith today when we ask, when we choose to trust, and when we remember that even when we don't get what we want, we can trust that we will always get what is best, that the Lord always has what's best in mind for us. And so if you live for the Lord, if you make it your central aim to follow Christ, all right, to live according to Christ, to obey his word, to make him the very target, again, the motivation of all you do, he will provide what is best for you as you live your life tomorrow and in the weeks to come and all of your time here on this earth. And this wedding party, 
Well, it just got a whole lot better, all right? And from what we can tell, the people in attendance have no idea what had happened. But for the servants, and maybe more importantly, the disciples, they must have been stunned and amazed at what they saw. Look what, look what takes place next. Verse 11, John records, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And then notice this next statement here. And his disciples believed him. They believed in him. Again, they're still getting to know this man, still trying to piece it all together. And now Jesus has given them a glimpse of who he really is. And the disciple John, and he's there that day. And he's the one that has written down these words for us. The one who, again, stood there with his friends, these disciples, and witnessed it all. He wants us to see and understand that something significant happened that day. In the lives of the disciples, something in their faith which prompted them to action and drew them to Jesus even more. Verse 12, it says, after this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum, all right, and we'll talk about Capernaum in the weeks to come, but it's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee here. But he goes down to Capernaum with his mother's, mother and brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. And so they believed, as John called out, in Jesus, and now they're going to keep following him. Their, their faith in him was growing, and they're going to go out and they're going to put their faith in motion by following Jesus every step other way. And, and maybe that's the biggest lesson for today. Uh, maybe that's our takeaway from, uh, for today from this story. If you're right, taking notes and you want to write this down, just like those first disciples, what I want you to see today is that Jesus doesn't call us to have blind faith. All right? He's not satisfied with blind faith, but our faith in Jesus requires a response to him. All right, here, here's what I mean by that. This, this idea of blind faith, the type of faith where we just give Jesus a nod once in a while. This type of faith where it, it might draw us into a church service, you know, every now and then, but nothing really comes from it. Jesus is just looking for so much more from us. He's got so much more in mind than, than church attendance even. He, he, he wants so much more from me. He wants to be the target. He wants to be the aim as we talked about last week. He wants to be the very central motivation in our lives. And so faith in action means a commitment that I'm going to pattern everything about my life after Christ. I'm going to make it my effort every single day, every single moment to following Christ in this world. And did these guys know what the days ahead held for them? I don't think so. Uh, check out John chapter 2, uh, 12 to 24 this week when you get a chance. Or maybe in your Bible reading with us, you've, you've already uh, read some of these verses. Jesus and his disciples are going to return eventually to Jerusalem uh, for a festival, all right? And they're going to get there, and Jesus is going to go into the temple, and he's going to pick a fight, all right, with a bunch of people there. And, uh, and he was going to pick a fight with those who were making what he called his father's house an embarrassment. I'm guessing that change of scenery and Jesus' actions are going to mess with the disciples a little bit because they knew and realized that you didn't go to the temple and pick a fight, all right? You lose your life over that. That gets you killed. And so their new faith will quickly be tested. And did they understand that Jesus was on his way to the cross, but yet he would rise from the dead? I don't think so either. Not yet. All right? He'll talk about the in the years to come. For now, all they knew is that they had witnessed something amazing with their eyes in Cana. And so they responded by following Jesus wherever he invited them next. And so he's growing their faith. They're responding by their actions, and I want to look at just a few more verses with you before we close. 
And if you want to turn in your own Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Again, the verses will be here on the screen. But this idea of faith in action uh, might have been something new to the disciples. And again, it's something that Jesus is going to teach them and grow them over the next few years. But you need to know they weren't the first. These weren't the first. This, this concept of faith and action, according to the writer of Hebrews, is something that God has been working out in his people for hundreds of years, hundreds of years before even. Look at, look at uh, how the writer of Hebrews records in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. This is often referred to as the great faith chapter of the Bible. It would be a great chapter to read and to study this week. But he addresses this issue of faith. Look what he says about faith. He says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us the assurance about things we cannot see. Verse 6, he says, and it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. But here's what's interesting as you continue reading on. The phrase by faith is mentioned something like 21 times here in the book of Hebrews, 20 of those in chapter 11 alone. And well, if you read it for yourself, you're going to just see this this story, this uh, kind of reference of how by faith people like Abel who brought a better gift to the Lord or by faith Enoch who walked so faithfully with the Lord that he didn't lose his life here on the earth but he was carried away to heaven or by, by faith Noah built a boat for a flood when it had never rained on the earth up to that point in history and how by faith Abraham picked up his family and moved and by faith people like Sarah and by faith people like Isaac and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and by faith people like David and Samuel as this chapter calls out by faith these Old Testament heroes responded to whatever God had called them to because they had seen him at work in their lives or in the lives of others and they didn't always know what the outcome would be but look at what the writer of Hebrews says about them and their faith over in verse 13. He continues, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it And then they agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on the earth, if you're reading it in the New Living Translation. Some uh, versions of the Bible say resident aliens. That's who we are if we're in Christ. We're here for a short time. We're here for a moment, really. But there's divine purpose behind your life here on this earth. We are to live in this world, but not of this world, by faith trusting the Lord, shining his light so that others might see and believe and follow Christ. And then look at these words in verse 33 to 35. I wish we had more time to read all of these passages, but let me just read a few verses here for you as the writer records. By faith, these people, listen to what they did, overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free, and they placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. I wonder if the writer of Hebrews even considered adding something like this. Those first few men witnessed Jesus change water to wine. And by faith, they began to follow him wherever he led them next. What's this mean for us today before we close? Let me just ask you this morning. Have you seen God at work in your life? 
Have you seen him at work in the lives of others? Have you witnessed him do some things that you know to yourself, this is absolutely undeniable, it can only come from God? Have you prayed prayers and seen God answer those prayers? Have you witnessed him change a a situation in your life, in your heart, or in your marriage, or in your home? And if so, are you allowing these experiences and moments like these to grab a hold of your faith and life, and are you putting that faith into action today? In everything that you do, is it changing you? Is it changing the way that you love God? Is it changing the way that you love others? Is it impacting your aim and your motivation in this world? Imagine what could happen. Can you imagine with me today what might happen? What could be written about, well, our church, even Genesis Church, if we began to follow the example of these men and women and actually put our faith into motion every single day, our faith in Jesus even in very practical and sometimes very simple ways. Like what if by faith we began to pray for eyes to just see him at work all around the world and and even in our own communities and even in our own contexts and and we we, we just had a willingness in us to respond to whatever he called us to obediently. Or, Or if by faith we started living as Jesus did with such passion that everyone around us took note and we're drawn to it, or if by faith we became the husbands and wives that God has called us to be, what if by faith we started looking at the way that we parent with a whole new perspective? What if by faith school became so much more than grades and survival and diplomas and degrees, but even even greater opportunity to share the love of Jesus, to live for Jesus? What if by faith we worked with integrity every single day, no matter what the job was, even if it was a job that we really didn't like? What if by faith we loved our neighbors and our coworkers and our families and family, uh, again, the family the way that Jesus wants us, even, even when they don't seem lovable, all right, or aren't willing to reciprocate that love? What if by faith we put our gifts and our talents and our abilities and resources to use by serving here at Genesis and, and in our local community? What if by faith we made our relationship your relationship with the Lord, the very foundation of our lives. Can you imagine what the Lord might want to do through this church and the kind of impact that we can have in Hamilton County if we put our faith in him, if we trusted him every single day of our lives? Jesus didn't call his disciples to have a blind faith in him, but he did challenge them to respond with the faith that they had. How's Jesus calling you today? What might he be prompting you to do? Uh, Even what's the next step that you might take in your life as a way of living out your faith in him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we thank you once again for your words, Lord. We thank you for uh, the example that you've provided for us in Jesus. We thank you for a model that you've provided for us in Jesus Christ. And we know that this is in no way about trying to earn his love or to earn your love or to earn your salvation. But it's a result of it. That because of what we've received and experienced and seen with our own eyes, Lord, we want to make it our daily effort to live for Jesus in this world so that others might see and turn to you, God, and live for you along with us so that people might find their way back to God. Move in us today, Lord. Move in our hearts every day, every moment, every circumstance. We want to follow you faithfully and obediently in this world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.